Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams podcast. My guest today is Chris Bloomstrand, the president and chief investment officer of Semper Augustus Investments Group in St. Louis. Chris is an old school value investor with whom I've had several fascinating exchanges myself. And recently, I was an observer of another particular exchange that prompted my inviting him to come and spend a little time chatting with me today. Several weeks ago, along with their new price target for Tesla, ARK Invest released their now famous open source model. Now, Chris picked that model apart and posed a series of questions on Twitter to the ARK analysts. And what followed was an extraordinary exchange between two people who it was very clear to me had very different levels of understanding around the subjects at hand. And this, I have to say, really, really intrigued me. So I asked Chris if he'd come and discuss not just that exchange, but many of the questions it raised about today's investment environment with me. So without further ado, here's Chris Bloomstrand. Well, Chris, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you. Thanks for making the time. Well, Grant, I've been a huge fan of all your pods, and it's just an absolute pleasure to be here with you. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of stuff I want to get into, and, I, and I'm going to start with the, the thing that kind of brought us together. But before I do, I've got a very, very important question that I need to ask you, which was inspired by one of your tweets not that long ago. And that that is whether you would rather have had lunch with Buffett and Graham in 1967 or been front and center at the checkerboard in 1981 when Muddy Waters and the Stones played. <laughs> uh, I'm going to commit you to an answer. I should never have, never have gone down the path of being on Twitter, period. And you know, I'm usually kind of checking it out on weekends and Saturdays. And yeah, I, I, you know, my, my daughter is doing the PR between going to college and trying to play college golf. She's doing the PR for the, the National Blues Museum, which is here in St. Louis. She's doing it remotely from California. So, you know, I, I love the blues and my favorite band of all time is the Stones. And, you know, I happened to stumble across on Saturday this great 10-minute clip, which I then turned out finding the entire concert. But you know, there was a Muddy Waters show in 1981, which was the year of the, um, um, oh, which which tour was it? Um, goat Soup, right? No, Goat Soup was 70s. It was, uh, yeah, that was, it was the one with Start Me Up and uh, uh, We yeah, Are uh, Tattoo You. Tattoo You, God, of course it was. Oh, my Lord. So, so it was 80, so, 80, 81, 81. It was 81, it was 81. And um, it was a Muddy Water show, and they kind of impromptu came in and, and sat at the front table, and then Muddy called up Mick, and he called up Keith, and he called up Ronnie Wood. And I later that day found the entire concert, or, you know, 45 minutes of the concert. But, you know, I tweeted that out, and I asked, would you rather have had lunch with Warren Buffett and Ben Graham circa 1967? So Ben would have still been sharp, and, you know, Mr. Buffett would have just yeah. taken Berkshire Hathaway a couple of years prior, or had been kind of front table and... I really didn't toy with that because, you know, you know, I've been a big Berkshire Buffett follower for a long time, but I've also yeah. been a 
film fan for a long time. So I, I'm still not resolved on which I would rather do, but that would have been a, that would have been a life highlight to have seen something like that. I think the beauty of it is had you followed Warren Buffett in 1967, by 1981, you'd had enough money to buy a front row seat at the checkerboard. So I think you probably could have done both. Yeah, I actually wrote a little funny thing in my, in my letter this year. And that was, you know, I was born in 1968 in, in Kansas City, I really grew up in Denver. But I, in my letter, blamed my parents for not being more attuned to what was going on about two and a half miles north in Omaha, because, you know, I had baby Chris realized what a great job of capital allocation was being done that my life would be a lot different at this point. It was early 2000 before we came around to Bush. A little harsh on your parents. Well, look, um, as I mentioned a short while ago, there, there was something that brought you and I uh, into contact, which I found fascinating. And it, and it, it revolves around um, Tesla, the whole things, which seems to bring a lot of people together in this day and age. And, uh, and I want to kick off with that because I, I know that the thing we're going to discuss is is a big part of what you do is a big part of your career, but it's also going to take us on to a, a bunch of other subjects um, on similar on similar lines that that go back to a different era. And so, uh, the, the the topic at hand was the um, the Arc report that uh, the analyst Dale Winton put out about um, you know their new price target when they came out with it. I think seven thousand dollars was the new price target, and they put a report out um, on the internet talking about their open source model and. Look, as is normal, these things get picked apart. Um, not, not, none of them more so than the ARC models, which which kind of invite that. And, I, and I'm sure that Kathy and the team embrace that in many ways. But I came across your piece that kind of picked the, apart, particularly the insurance, the Tesla insurance thing, piece by piece. And it was done so brilliantly and so beautifully. Um, and, and and I have to say, Chris, so graciously, it wasn't you weren't being snarky. You you were asking genuine questions. Um, and you just pick this thing apart very, very carefully, very diligently, very methodically. And um, it really struck home to me that, that what I saw there was the difference between the way the world used to be, which was deeply researched, thoughtful analysis of things, and the way the world is today, which is you know, meme stocks and, and big numbers being thrown around with really little behind them. So I'd love to dig into that as a as a kind of framework for this, and and really get you to talk about what you saw, what it made you think, and 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 then what you went to try and understand it better. Well, Grant, I, I love your point about the way it was in terms of the way research had been conducted in prior eras. You know, I go back to the late '90s and early 2000 when you know I was 10 years into my career, and there was a period there in the late '90s where a lot of parallels to today. Research seemingly was suspended. Valuations uh, were just extremely excessive. You know, you had kind of the peaking of the blue chips in 1998, but then you got into the tech bubble. And by late 99, early 2000, your NASDAQ had risen by 5X. And, you know, I got to the end of 99 and, you know, clients wanted to know why you didn't own tech. You couldn't go to a cocktail party and have technology stocks and the internet not be the subject of jour. And this was doctors and lawyers. This was everybody who had been sucked in during the late part of the bull market. And valuations made no sense. And you know, I, I, for, you know, for the same reasons that I struggled then with the valuations of a lot of those tech names, and some of which were great businesses and continued to be great businesses, and some went away, 
because they really didn't have great business models. You know, you're seeing a lot of parallels today, and it could be SaaS software, software stocks. You know, but I think Tesla is the epitome of kind of this, this suspension of valuation, this suspension of reason. You know, in my January 1, 2000 client letter, I talked about Microsoft, and I held it out as an example of really just the mania for everything technology and effectively through a series of what were 12 or 13 predictions for the next 15 years, some of which were some of these internet companies will run out of cash and fail, long-term interest rates, which were then six and a half would trade below three, uh, market cap to GDP, which we could actually talk about now because there's kind of a follow-on yeah. uh, with Elon and Kathy. But market cap to GDP would fall back to more of a normal level, which was simply a way of saying the overall stock market was expensive. But then my first prediction was Microsoft shareholders will lose money for the next 15 years. And then it had nothing to do with Microsoft being a bad business. It was a wonderful business. Right. The company had been public for 15 years. The stock had compounded at 64 or 65% a year. And by January 1, 2000, on what's now a split adjusted two for one stock split, 60 bucks a share, you had a $620 billion market cap on 20 billion in revenues. And Microsoft was you know, arguably the best business in the world at that point. They had a 38% profit margin. So the company was doing seven and a half billion or thereabouts in profits, but at 620 billion, you were trading at 80 plus times earnings. And you know, you extrapolate forward what had been that mid-60s return and 15 years out, you got into the quadrillions of dollars. I had to look it up because right. you know, last time I had to think about what came after trillions was probably fourth grade. So between here and there, something was going to go wrong, but the valuation had to fix itself. And sure enough, it did. I mean, seven years later, with the stock down by two-thirds and the business having continued to grow and compound, I was buying the stock at 10 times earnings. So you went from 80 times to 10 times in a business that was doing 20 billion in revenues that's gonna do probably $150 billion was so far ahead of itself that you did lose money as the shareholder for 15 years. And I got uh, you know just an enormous amount of pushback. And so you kind of fast forward to this current iteration and you know in the fall when Tesla had announced their five for one stock split and the stock just went through the stratosphere, you looked at the valuation and you could take any number of tech companies today and make the same case that I would have made with Microsoft back yeah. then. I sent a tweet out, and again, I shouldn't be on Twitter, um, but I sent a, a tweet out into the Twitter sphere, whatever they call it, and it was critical of the share price, simply really not much about the business model, but the share price. And the blowback I got from the pro Tesla crowd was something I never thought I'd see in my investing career again. And you know, the example I've got of that was beyond the cocktail crowd. I had done, I shouldn't tell this story, but I had done a newspaper roundtable in Denver um, in maybe February of 2000. It was either the Denver Post or the Rocky Mountain News. It was back then it was a two paper town. And there were three or four of us on the panel and I had just written my letter and I had spent six or seven pages kind of talking about why Microsoft shareholders were going to lose money for 15 years. And the editors brought that up and I talked about it a little bit. Well, one of the guys on the panel, and I won't, I won't say his name, 
but was one of the one of the big portfolio managers at Invesco. And at that point, Invesco's growth operation was in Denver. It seems like everything growth was in Denver. Janus was in Denver. You know, anybody that had the high flying tech stock seemed to be there. Their value operation was in Atlanta. But so so this guy took profound opposition to my case, um, suggested, you know, I was very young at the time that I didn't know much about what I was talking about. And we kind of went back and forth and, you know, post the interview, we can follow you. We, we walked out of the, the conference room at the newspaper together and he pulled me aside before we got on the elevator and literally poked his finger in my chest. And, you know, I wasn't that many years removed from playing college football. And he kind of looked up at me and <laughs> poked me and said, you're young and you don't know what you're talking about. We have more than 5% of our capital at all of Invesco and Microsoft. It's more than 5% of my fund and you don't understand growth and you don't understand valuation. I said, you know, respectfully, Mr. You know, so-and-so, I said, you know, I come at this from a pure valuation standpoint or it just defies logic. You can't get there. You fast forward to the reaction that I got from that first tweet I sent out on Tesla and you can't make a case that the Tesla stock uh, in any way is reflective of the underlying fundamentals of the business. And there are, there are cases to be made that this may not be as good of a business as some think it is. An awful lot has to go right. But I've never seen that visceral reaction, um, you know, save the late 90s, early 2000s. I never thought I'd yeah. see it again in my career. But then again, I never thought I'd see the kind of valuation extremes that we saw then that we have today in some corners. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And I've, you know, I've thought about this a lot because, I, you know, I, 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 I don't, care about tesla per se i'm i'm fascinated by it um and i have opinions on it which i'm happy to share i'm, I'm never rude to people about it I, i'm happy to offer my opinion and, and and my my opinions on it are well documented but like you i've i've found it interesting that um the argument ultimately comes down to the share price it, it, it's this is about price it's it's really about nothing else that the the kind of tesla fans think that tesla is this phenomenal company but they they use the share price to justify that they, they won't listen to you know reports that the the, the porsche taycan is better than the model s or this new mercedes s is, uh, eqs is going to kill the model s and they don't want to hear about the the mark e so this is not anything about kind of electric vehicles per se this is a tesla specific thing but they use the stock price to beat people over the head about them being right about the company which i find strange and for the shorts, obviously, um, it, they've been crushed by the, sh the stock price. But really, just about every argument that I've seen made by the bears, who tend to be longer in the tooth, more experienced people like yourself, like me, who've been around for multiple decades looking at these things and have seen similar things before, that, that well-researched uh, stuff that, that, that you put out there, because the stock price hasn't reflected it, you're beaten over the head with it. So I, I, just, I find the whole thing interesting because it is really all about the stock price. Well, it is. I mean, you take, you take the, the market value of the company post the five for one split, post Elon engineering the stock into the S&P 500, which required a lot of accounting, gymnastics, and even business fundamental operational decision-making to make it appear as though the company was profitable for four quarters and that would be, you know, cutting in, in dollar terms, not even relative to sales, but cutting R&D and cutting CapEx. Um, you know, you, you had to 
you had to rely heavily on the environmental tax credits that they were being paid by GM and by Fiat Chrysler to get to profitability. But you know, at the the late 2020, on a market cap that peaked at a trillion on a fully diluted basis for a business doing 31 billion in revenues, it's just an absurd thing to believe that you know, all of the fundamental case that, that has to go right can go right because the stock at, at, at this point is so far ahead of itself to defy logic. And today we have the same thing we had in the late 90s. And, you know, we have TAMs, we have total addressable market. Back then you had eyeballs. And everybody wants to make the case that, you know, Tesla is going to do some number of automobiles either in the next five years or 10 years or 20 years. And you can kind of bake in how big the overall market is. You know, we've never done 100 million autos globally. We were close a couple of years ago, three years ago, uh, kind of before the auto you know, industry rolled over with the trade war. But, you know, at, at 10% market share, you become Volkswagen with 10 million global units. You become Toyota with 10 million global units. GM doesn't do near that. Tesla did 500,000 last year. So, but people will say, well, this is not a car company. This it's a software company. We're going to have RoboTaxi. And so you kind of think about what that looks like. And you look at all the businesses that Tesla is disrupting, and they're not very good businesses. So, you know, a Microsoft with what is still a 30% net margin and very high returns on capital, every business that Tesla wants to be in is extremely capital intensive. And back to your point about the suspension of research and suspension about valuation and logic, Nobody, but nobody talks about returns on equity or capital. And that's my world. Good businesses earn a profit, but not a profit margin. They have to earn a profit relative to the amount of money invested in the business. And that's equity capital and debt capital. And the way Tesla compensates their executives, Elon's stock options, which have been granted in two batches, which total north of 20% of all of the shares outstanding of the company, big grants given in 2012 and then again in 2018 when they were on the door of bankruptcy, an enormous given away. The hurdles for Elon to get paid have nothing to do with return on equity, return on capital. They have to do with getting to the prototype and then getting into production and then revenue numbers. And nowhere other than some EBITDA metrics, which for a capital-intensive business, ignore interest charges, ignore depreciation, char depreciation charges. It's just insanity. You look at, at and, and when I got into the ARC model, which I didn't intend to do, we had just gotten to the beach for a week of vacation, and I was going to uh -oh. catch up on my annual reports, and I had a couple books I wanted to read, spend time with the family, watch the dolphins swim by, you know, watch some of the college basketball. So that Saturday when we got there was the day after Kathy and ARC's report came out, and I read it with disbelief and went through their assumptions when it came to the number of cars produced and came to the price point on the cars and ride hail, be it, you know, human driven ride hail or autonomous, but then some assumptions about insurance, which were just mystifying to me, but nowhere in that report did they talk about profitability and the amount of capital it was going to take. If you're going to make cars, you know, Tesla has two plants right now, obviously they've got their Fremont, California, and then they've got Shanghai. They've got two in production in Austin and in Germany. And you do the capacity at those four plants, and you can't get to the number of cars that are believed that they can make, somewhere between five and 10 million, and eventually 20 million or more. It's going to take an awful lot of money to get there. As I went through that ARC report, 
you know, none of it made any sense. I just read the whole thing with utter disbelief, but, you know, kind of specifically a couple of things that, that I didn't, I couldn't let go. And it was this insurance model where they're purportedly going to be an insurance underwriter and grow into this extremely large insurance underwriter in the United States in a very short period of time. And also kind of an, ignoring the, sh- the number of shares that have been issued in stock options and RSUs. And so when you got to these absurd, in my opinion, estimates for market valuation in four and three quarter years, I mean, this, this was a, a new price target for the end of 2025 that had three cases. It had a base case of $3,000 a share, a bear case of 1,500 and a bull case, I think, of 4,000 bucks a share. And that report assumed exactly a billion shares outstanding. And you look at a company that with 960 million shares by the end of 2020, having sold a bunch of stock at very high prices last year in these at-the-money transactions, they started off 2020 with 905 million shares. There's an overhang of 165 million shares plus another 80 or 90 million shares that have been authorized but that have not yet been issued. And to ignore that and say that at a 3,000 kind of midpoint normal price target, gives you a $3 trillion market cap, that in and of itself, $3 trillion grant. I mean, Apple, the biggest company in the world does, has a $2.2 trillion market cap. They're going to do $300 billion in revenues that make a 20% profit, so $60 billion in profit. To get to $3 trillion in four and three quarter years is just insanity. And so I thought through each of those components of the report and then sent my tweet out, which really just centered on the insurance case they made, yeah. And centered on the dilution from the, the stock options. And I got some feedback from their director of research. You mentioned his name, Brett uh, Winton. Da, da, I, uh, Dale Winton? Uh, Dale Brett, Winton I, Brett. I think it's Brett Winton. Oh, uh, Brett Winton. Uh, yeah, I think, oh, yeah. I'm getting man, confused so, with this TV host. Yeah. And, and to be clear, I mean, I have nothing against Kathy Wood or Brett or Ark. I mean, I, didn't even, I have not heard of these people until last fall. You know, Tesla had not crossed my radar until the five-for-one split. And at that point, I looked at the valuation. I put a very little short position on. It's, um, you know, less than 1% of my personal capital. It's way less than 1% of firm capital. I'm short in one account. It's just a, a very immaterial thing. When I wrote the Microsoft yeah. piece, I didn't have any short positions anything. And I'm not even a short seller. I mean, I've got one account or just kind of for hobbyist sake, I do a little shorting, but I couldn't resist this one. And, you know, having already, you know, 5X'd in growth and having, you know, compounded at 64, 65%, to me, you can't take a trillion dollar market cap and get harmed by it if it's less than 1% of your capital. You know, it's not like having a big position in GameStop on, you know, kind of pick a number on what fair value would be if they fix the business. You're just not going to get killed by a trillion dollar market cap. So I've got a tiny short, but so I, I went at it in this, in this tweet and got a lot of feedback. And through a series of back and forth with Brett, um, you know, I think I just, uh, I think I made a very pretty compelling case that the insurance operation doesn't exist, can't get to where they thought it would be. And we can get into some of the numbers and the detail if you like, but, and they were just completely missing the, the dilution that was going to come. And some of the responses I got after a series of back and forth just kind of blew my mind and, you know, demonstrate yeah. to me that either because ARC has this high class problem, similar to the problem that Janice had 
in early 2000 when Janus was getting 50% of all of the money flowing into the entire mutual fund complex. You know, ARC is now this $50 billion or whatever is behemoth that are dependent upon flows. And what do you do uh, to encourage flows? Because, you know, like Janus, which owned very few stocks and all of their PMs and all of their funds, Janus 20, whatever, they all own the same stuff. And as the money came in, they yeah. bought more and more of that stuff. And eventually when you start to get a diminution of flows or the flows go out, you've got a problem. And so to me, either this ARC price target model report was promotional or it lacked a lot of understanding about how some very simple to me, um, you know, aspects of how capital and financial statements work. And that's, you know, complete lack of understanding of property casualty, auto insurance, and even a lack of understanding about dilution and capital requirements for building a capital-intensive auto manufacturer. Well, look, Chris, let's let's do that. Actually, let's, as you said, you kindly offered to go into some of the numbers, and I think it I think it's helpful to do that because, like you, I saw the report and um, and was blown away by. It. But when I but when I then came across your Twitter thread, and as I said, look, you you were respectful and polite and asking what I thought were very salient questions and and important questions and. Uh, from what I could gather, the engagement initially was was pretty solid. That they, you know, Brett would come back and answer your questions, and then the kind of responses petered out. But yeah, you know, I too was was astounded not just by the numbers, but by the, the, what let's face it was the simplicity of your questions. Um, for for particularly for someone with your background, the simplicity of your questions and. Some of the responses, I think you were talking about some of the dilution and, and the responses, uh, something like, oh, good catch. You know, it, 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 so just take us through some of those numbers that, that surprised you, uh, why they surprised you and, and what they meant to you. Well, take Tesla as it exists today. I mean, they did $31.5 billion in revenues in 2020. And to their credit, they grew the top line during a pandemic year. You know, every one of their major auto competitors, you know, suffered. Plants were down. People weren't driving. They put off shopping. So, you know, they managed to grow through the downturn. But $31.5 billion in revenues. In its history, the company has raised on the order of 23 or 24, maybe $25 billion in equity capital. They've raised, oh, I don't know, $15 billion in debt and preferred. So all in, they've raised about $40 billion. And this is a car company to be clear, until they, you know, theoretically diversify into other businesses and business lines. If you take the entire global auto industry, it's very capital intensive. You know, G General Motors has 11 plants. They've got another 25 plants for metal stamping and battery production. They've got parts distribution facilities. I mean, it costs big bucks and, re and requires an awful lot of labor to make cars. And so, you know, all in, if Tesla's done $30 billion in revenues, it's taken $40 billion to get there. Now, start to finish, they're new and they're disruptive. And so they've lost money. They've lost 5 or $6 billion cumulative to date. So you've got a book value of $23.5 or $24 billion. So $19 billion in cash. Now, 12 of that cash came on those at-the-money raises last year. Yep. And there are questions as to even the ethics of selling stock without an offering document and disclosure of risk factors, you know, bleeding shares to broker dealers, letting them just bleed those shares in the market. I struggle with that, but it, it is what it is. So you've got this business that's going to clearly grow their business. 
They've got capacity at what will be four plants, but it's going to take an awful lot of money to get there. And so in that context, you know, you take, you take you know, to your point about the dilution. So, you know, I asked how much more money will it take to manufacture between your, your bear case and your, your bull case between five and 10 million cars, having done 500,000 on a trailing 12 month basis, how much more capital will it take? I mean, your model suggests no more dilution from issuing common stock. You know, despite having had sold a bunch of it last year and raised what's now 19 billion in cash on the balance sheet, the reply from ARC was, we're done, there's gonna be no more equity issuance. Okay, fine. So, how much debt capital is it going to take to build the incremental plants and to put property plant equipment in these factories? I didn't get an answer on that. And when I asked then about um, the share count being exactly a billion, which would be only 40 million new shares above the 960 million out today, ignoring the overhang of 165 million shares, plus, as I said, the 80 or 90 million that are authorized for ongoing issuance. So we're just gonna presume they're done giving away stock options, done giving away RSUs, and only 40 million, so that was a catch. And, and the response was, oh, good catch. We'll just bake that into share repurchases. Well, think about the absurdity. This business needs a mountain of capital to grow, and we're gonna, we can talk about the insurance assumptions that they made, but it is gonna take them you know, nine or $10 billion. Oh, we'll get onto those, yeah. Have an underwriter, but to grow the business. And you know, the, the response from Brett was, well, in the out years, we assume hundreds of billions of dollars of cash on the balance sheet with a central tendency, as he said it, of $200 billion. Well, it just boggles the mind that you would commit that to uh, report with a price target over a very short four and three quarter years, and you would commit it to a series of uh, tweets. I mean, physically, mathematically, actuarially, ec economically, you can't get there. It's the money yeah. it's gonna take to grow the business, you can't come up with the cash to buy back that amount of stock. I mean, at today's price, to buy back what would be, so forget about the 80 or 90 million in, in authorized shares, just take, the options and the RSUs outstanding, the majority of which are Elon's. I mean, if you're gonna to get yeah. to $3,000 per share, every one of those option shares are going to be exercised and they will be fully dilutive and outstanding, which means you know, you're gonna have 13% dilution in the share count between now and the point where you, know, you get to your $3,000 share, I mean, share price. And so um, to be at a billion suggests we're done issuing stock. It, 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 you can't do it. The company can't produce that much cash. You look at Toyota, which is a best-in-class auto, auto manufacturer. They do a 6% profit margin. They earn high single-digit returns on capital. And it's a business that does, you know, almost $300 billion in revenues. You know, they are 10% global market share. Their manufacturing operations are best-in-class. And it's the most profitable auto manufacturer on the planet. And they earn a single-digit return on capital. Yeah. Profitability assumptions baked into the ARC model have these guys doing, you know, revenues in four and three quarter years of between 300 and 700 billion dollars and doing, you know, profits of, you know, somewhere between 75 billion dollars in profit and 170 billion dollars in profit. I mean, just as, as a investor of 30 years, 
I don't care how disruptive you are and how many business lines you're going to get in, you can't get there from here. Well, look, let's just talk about that because this this is one of the aspects of this whole phenomenon. And, and Tesla is a phenomenon at this point. Um, this is one of the things that I find so fascinating about it because you're absolutely right. that The numbers just don't stack up and, and they never have stacked up. Now, the, the problem, as I see it, is the longer you go on, the harder it is, you would think, to sell the dream because the dream starts out a long way away. And every year you move forward, the dream ought to be coming closer to you. And what's really surprised me, perhaps more than anything else, is the willingness on the part of, I, I was going to put investors in quotation marks there, but there are some, there are some real investors in there. You know, um, James Anderson's Bailey Gifford had a significant position in these things uh, earlier on in the piece. But we're getting further down the track and the dreams aren't really becoming reality. Uh, there's, there's, there's kind of some, some pedantics around them and, and semantics around them. And, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're doing something, but we're not quite there yet, but it's still coming in the next three to six months. And what's really surprised me has just been the willingness of people to just kind of ignore that, you know, ignore all the things that were promised, ignore, you know, the 1 million robo taxis on the road by the end of next year. I mean, nothing, nothing gets said, not just on the part of investors, because obviously if the stock is going up, it doesn't matter to a lot of people that, that all they care about is a stock going up, but also on the part of analysts and financial media and all the people who look at these things, not through the clear blue eyes of someone dreaming about a, a wonderful future, but through cold, hard numbers and experience and are supposed to analyze these companies. And yet, the the Wedbushes, the Morgan Stanleys, you know, the the, the Dan Ives, the, the Adam Joneses, to, to name but two analysts who are who are seasoned industry analysts, seem to be just applying a completely different uh, set of metrics to this company. Well, I would I would dismiss the sell side because <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> you know, for for a Chinese wall that is theoretically exists. If you're Tesla and you were raising 12 or $13 billion per year in stock sales last year, you can look at some of the sell-side analysts who literally had sell recommendations on the stock in June who changed their price target incrementally. Yeah. And kind of oddly, not far in advance of these at-the-money $5 billion incremental share issuances. So, you know, the, you know, there's there there are motivations that the sell side has that the buy that's side. Fair. Well, that's fair. That's fair. We know how that sausage is made. That's true. So 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 there's that. But you know, and I'm not an expert in some of these technologies. But you just look at you look at it from a common sense approach. So you take the Arc model and Ride Hill, for example. And I didn't get into that. I mean, I I don't know. You know, you're right. This has been pushed off and pushed off. You look at the tragedy of what happened in Texas over the weekend and the stupidity of what happened in Texas. Now, I don't see where you're going to get government authorities globally to sign off on, on unmanned ride hail anytime soon. I mean, I can tell you in my lifetime, outside of being at Disney World, I'm not getting in a car that doesn't have a driver, and that car better be inside right. guardrails. I mean, it's just, but, you know, the ARC model said, you know, we're, we, you know, the bear case will have over $40 billion in revenues by 2025 from manned ride hail. And, you know, if the bull case hits in four and a half years, we'll have over $300 billion in revenues. 
So step back, and as an analyst, I would compare that to an Uber that did $12.5 billion in revenues last year, which were down. You know, I think the street thinks they're going to do $17 billion. And they've lost a mountain of money over the history of the company. And it's not a capital-intensive business. They don't own the cars. And the drivers that, that drive in this gig economy, they don't make any money. You know, they're, they're driving for cash flow or they're driving for entertainment value. But when you look at the cost of the vehicle and the depreciation of the vehicle and the insurance and the maintenance and the fuel, you don't make any money. It's like the guy working for Domino's. I mean, Domino's is a wonderful model because the delivery guy makes 6 or $7 an hour but drives his own vehicle. Um, you know, why not go work at Panera and make 15 bucks an hour or at Costco and make 23 bucks an hour and not have to drive your own car at your own expense and on your own dime. But, you know, I I looked at the numbers in New York City and the New York Taxi Authority, the Limousine and Taxi Authority, you know, they have great granular data on their website. And if you go back seven or eight years, you know, the the entirety of New York City cabs were doing under $200 million in revenues. Now, this is the biggest cab market in the world, 200 million yep. with an M, not a B, 200 million. And over the seven or eight years of disruption from Uber and Lyft and what have you, they've cut them almost in half, a little over $100 million. So the cabbies aren't making any money. The value of the medallions have gone to nothing. So you have, the, you have these disruptive forces in Uber that don't make any money. The cabbies are not making any money. And this is a business that we're going to disrupt. And in four and a half years, we'll have over $300 billion in revenues doing you know, 30 or 40% profit margins, it's, again, you know, as, a, as an observer of a lot of companies and a lot of industries over a long period of time, I just can't get there. It's just, it's, I'm incredulous that people would commit this to the written word. But, but not only do they do that, because uh, it's funny, you know, whenever I hear uh, someone like you that, that can lay this out in, in very simple terms, you know, what you're, what you're saying here is not complicated. These are these are simple numbers if you're looking at Tesla, and yet they make no sense, as you say. It just doesn't hold up. Um, but the, you know, if we take out the kind of fanboy, cultish element of this, um, what do you think propels this stock? Is it just the perfect poster child, as I've contended, for this era that we're living in? It, it wraps everything into something it's it's technology it's electric vehicles it's green science it's celebrity culture it's it's the celebrity ceo it's robots it's ai it's ev- everything that kind of is is a is a meme of this generation seems to be wrapped up in this stock is it really as simple as that and if so what does it take for what happened to microsoft to happen to tesla because you, you're right microsoft has always been a great business uh, and yet Investors did lose money for 15 years in this thing. You know, it, it's, it's, it's the rubber meeting the road. It's at some point, the valuation has to make sense. I mean, you're better off in today's world being a business that doesn't have a profit and that has a large yeah. TAM because you're doomed once you actually start demonstrating profitability because then somebody has to value this thing based on, you know, normal fundamental metrics. And, and that's been suspended the same way it was suspended in the late 90s. I mean, none of those great businesses, you know, Microsoft sitting at the top, none of those tech stocks fared well, you know, for a decade, you know, many of them, Sun Microsoft, or Sun Microsoft is still not back to where it was. Yeah. I mean, at 20 to 30 times revenues. So we have this culture today that, that, that assumes there'll be so much disruptive growth that the price you pay does not matter. And I can't tell you when it's going to end, but 
I think it's at the point where you have to sit down and actually value these things. And, you know, you know, if you take the ARC model and you say, we're going to get to three and a half trillion market cap or four and a half trillion market cap, and the profitability is going to be some extraordinary number that you've never seen in a capital intensive industry in the history of capital. At some point, you know, it ends and you know maybe it's maybe it's a maybe it's a capital markets driven ending when the flows simply slow um, you know maybe when the world catches on to this thing is so overly promotional that there's no way to grow into it i mean think about this if you're not already in who's going to come in i mean where where is where's the bid in terms of you know finding the rational price if the flows reverse isn't anybody going to be in Tesla already in Tesla, for an example? I mean, the same thing in the late 90s. You know, the, the active investors that are in are already in. The passive investors, now that Tesla is in the index, are already in. So where's, where's the price discovery when you, when you have a miss? I mean, Microsoft stumbled, to be clear. You know, that was a operating system business, and that was the, 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 the Windows suite. So, you know, Word, Microsoft. Uh, PowerPoint, what have you, um, you know, the business slowed and, you know, you assume competition would come and it came and the net margin dropped from 38% to 22%. And when they started missing, and I think got the cloud early on, so the stock dropped from 80 to earnings down to 10 to earnings, and you've had a big profitability resurgence. I think Balmer doesn't get enough credit for the cloud, but it was, it took Satya uh, really to move the business to a subscription model and, and 365 to really drive this company forward. But you've made a, a you know high single digit return from that incredibly high high back on January 1, 2000. It was a mediocre return. And so I think there's such a belief that we'll continue to grow at 4X or 5X with a company like Tesla and a stock like Tesla over the next four or five years, that when you don't get that growth, it simply dies for lack of inertia. And then you run into the problem of, well, they really have to execute. And if you take all of these kind of base cases and all of these businesses that, that will be disrupted, you're not going to disrupt them. I mean, I, again, you know, I, I really didn't intend to go down the path. I didn't intend to go to war and I don't feel like I'm at war with Kathy or Ark at all. I have mean, a lot of respect for what they've built and done. But you can't take a, an industry that I know extremely, extremely well, like private passenger auto insurance and commercial auto. It's a regulated business. And when you, and, and, and one of your, and you'd mentioned him, but one of your sell side analysts did the same thing in a report last fall to justify their now higher $800 or whatever share price. They, they threw you a 60 or $70 per share valuation for the insurance piece. Mm -hmm. And the ARC model threw a number on the insurance piece, which said their insurance operation, we think, will do $23 billion in revenues, and they'll operate with a 40% EBIT, earnings before interest and tax margin, at the end of 2025. So again, knowing a fair amount about, a little bit, let's say about auto insurance, that's insanity. I mean... Auto insurance is a regulated business. It's an admitted business, meaning the state insurance commissioners have to authorize you writing insurance in each of those states. So you've got 50 different separate insurance commissions. And, and this is just US. And I wound up, you know, kind of getting Brett to come back and suggest that they only base their case 
on U.S. policies, but he said, we'll get 40% market share on the cars we're going to write. So, you know, if you've been following this, this, this Tesla insurance thing, you, you know that Tesla's cost more to insure than other vehicles. And I've talked to a lot of people in the insurance business. You, know, you can go price policies online with Geico and Progressive. I've talked to brokers. I've talked to underwriters. I've talked to CEOs and CFOs of, of, of some of the insurance companies that we know very well. And they'll all tell you that it's you know between 20 and 45% more expensive to insure one of the Tesla models. What's been surprising to some of the folks that I've talked to is that the frequencies of Tesla accidents are also higher. So Teslas are largely more expensive because they cost more to insure. They have all these sensors and cameras and technology. They don't have a lot of service centers. And so, you know, if you get a wreck here in St. Louis, you've got to ship your car to Chicago, I think. So the cost of fixing this, but they're also getting a lot more wrecks. And, you know, is that because people are relying on a technology that really doesn't exist? Or is it because there are a lot more males that drive Teslas than females and males have a three to one propensity to get in wrecks than females? Serious auto accidents because they drive a hell of a lot faster? I don't know, but what I can tell you is when I read a company is gonna do 23 billion in four and a half years, 23 billion grant is the auto business inside of Allstate. I mean, the largest three underwriters right now in auto insurance are State Farm, Geico, and progressive. And so at 23 billion, that would take Tesla into the number four spot. Grant came back at me and said, well, we're only gonna broker policy. So Tesla's brokering policies now because it's too expensive to insure. So, mm-hmm. you know, people are frustrated. They buy these cars and they go to get them insured. And, well, oh my God, you know, my insurance bill is so high. Tesla will tell you that, well, they're a lot safer because of our technology. Well, no, you're not gonna fix, you know, you can't compensate for the, the higher degree of technical components in the vehicle. So Tesla's brokering policies, and they were actually brokering them with a subsidiary of Markel, that relationship ended. But in the ARC model, you know, to get to 23 billion in revenues, I assumed kind of a 15% commission to be paid to the brokerage business that exists that Tesla has. Right now, only in California, they have applications in three other states to, to, to broker policies, not to underwrite, to broker. Well, you get to the, the ARC presumed 40% market share on US cars, and it would require premiums of 9,500 bucks thereabouts per year. Well, the typical auto policy per year, think about what it costs to insure your car. The typical average premium is about 1,600 bucks a year. And so to make the ARC math work, 9,500 bucks. So you had to get to underwriting, and then to assume that you're gonna get admitted in all 50 states. And, you know, the assumption was they'd operated a 17% loss loss ratio. And here's where, when we got into the back and forth, you realize these people have no idea what they're talking about. There are are two ratios that combine to a combined ratio, the loss ratio, the expense ratio, and the combined. Losses, when you write, you know, a $1,000 auto policy, losses are going to be about 70%. So you're going to pay $700 out of every thousand to cover claims and pay for the cost of fixing cars, pay for the cost of fixing people. And then you've got the cost of running the firm and combined, the industry tends to lose money. I mean, it's an industry that, that does on private passenger auto, not quite 300 billion in revenues. And on an underwriting basis, it loses about 1%. You have really good underwriters like Geico that makes on the order of, you know, five to 10%. Progressive makes on the order of 10%. Mercury General, which I own, you know, shoots for a target of 
to then say that we're going to be so much better underwriters because of our data and our technology, telematics, you know, we're monitoring our drivers, that we can make a 40% EBIT profit, but at the same time do a 70% underwriting ratio, that means your profitability is more than simply the losses you're going to pay. So they don't even, so there's a lack of understanding of the nomenclature of even how insurance works, but there's no way. You may you hear the case, we're going to go to robo-taxi nationwide and globally. So we're not going to have any more wrecks. So what's even the need for auto insurance? Well, you know, you know, you wind up, you wind up with a shopping cart that hits your car. You're you always will have a need for insurance. And if, yeah. if the frequencies of, of accidents decline, then the insurance commissioners in each of these states will compel the price for insurance to come down. There is not an insurance commission on the planet that will allow a company to make a 40% EBIT margin. It doesn't even reconcile with the loss ratio, but you can't get there. And just a genuine lack of understanding. And so the comeback was, well, it's such a small piece of the valuation, throw it away. Well, no, it's not a small piece of the valuation. You know, if you're going to write $23 billion in auto, because again, it's an admitted line that requires registration with the insurance commissions, you know, nationally, you're allowed to write $3 of premium for every dollar of capital. So to write $23 billion in premium, you're going to have to have 8 or $9 billion in capital. Well, again, Tesla's entire book value right now is around $23 or $24 billion. So it's not immaterial. And that capital is invested in plant. It's invested in equipment. There's not a dollar available to Tesla today to underwrite insurance. There's no way to roll it out in five years. And frankly, I don't think the insurance commissioners in the United States will allow an auto company to directly sell its own insurance. GM is doing it, Toyota's doing it, but you know what? They're doing it with third parties. I don't yeah. think they'll allow vertical integration. So there's just a lot of nuance if, you, if you've got a decent understanding of the insurance game and how pricing works and how regulation works that simply get to, well, that's an impossibility. And the takeaway I have then is, I don't know anything about robo about robo taxis, and I don't know anything about you know to the the degree to which they're going to displace the electric utilities, whatever. Make your assumptions there, but if your model is that flawed, and you miss on insurance that badly, what else is missing in the model? And that's mm -hmm. where you step back and go, wow. I mean, you're telling me you're going to be a three trillion plus market cap, and you don't understand this nuance of the model. Uh, even remotely understand it. I mean, maybe you want to hire an insurance analyst to join your team. You've got 50 billion in AUM. Well, I mean, the cynics would say that there's a very good reason why you don't do that, right? Because these, these, um, these reports actually drive those flows that you spoke about earlier. Without these kind of reports that tap into a very particular mindset, um, you're kind of high and dry. You absolutely need to sell these stories to keep to keep those flows coming in. Yeah, you do. And you know, again, I'm not going to. I will not knock the fact that Tesla is and will grow. Again, to me, to be a good business, you have to make a decent return on equity capital, and to grow into the size required to justify what's today an 800 plus billion dollar fully diluted market cap is going to require a hell of a lot more capital invested in the business. And I have a hard time believing these very capital intensive businesses will get there. But even assuming they do, the stock is so far ahead of itself that once they grow into that fundamental case, 
that you can't make any money as a shareholder because you're paying such an enormous print. You're paying 25 times revenues for a capital intensive business. And so even give the bulls credit for growing into these things like robo-taxi and energy and you can't do it on insurance. I can guarantee you that it's not going to happen. But so, yeah, you're right. I mean, again, you've got this high class problem of needing to see the stocks continue to rise. And, you know, the struggle I had, the late nineties were frustrating because I had to defend myself with our clients that to a client wanted to own tech and the energy that it took to walk them off the ledge and say, you know, here's the reason we don't do it. Here's the reason you can't own Microsoft. And when I wrote the Microsoft piece, and there were six or seven pages, and it's on our website in our report that year, I said, you can substitute any number of these high-tech companies that are real businesses. Forget about the internet stuff. Forget about these fake things like pets.com. You can't get there mathematically. And so here we are today, and the struggle I have today is the same thing as not the sophisticated professionals that are coming into this thing today. Uh, it's, it's this retail army of investors coming at it through Robinhood and Schwab and TD that haven't got a clue about how valuation looks. You know, again, when I, when I went down the path of talking about Tesla, and I wish I hadn't done it, but the visceral response was so interesting and, you know, so disparaging of me and of valuation and of value investing that, you know, I almost couldn't help myself. It's like, you know, it's just, just for the, the entertainment value, I'll keep going down the path here. But at some point, benevolence is the wrong word. But, you know, I really hope that people get it because, you know, the, you know, the people that own the tech stocks in 99 that lost 80% or 90% of their money, some of them came back in 07. And, you know, some came back heavy in real estate. But a lot of them came back to the market saying, well, that was a one-off. And the S&P 500, which fell by half and recovered back to 1,500, the NASDAQ took forever to recover, you know, that hard to recover from an 80 or 90% decline. Some of those people came back to the markets. And then when they lost 65% in 2008-09, that crowd of investors is gone from the market. Or they've said, I'm not going to do this myself. I'm going to find one of these value investors that are kind of dim-witted at the moment that actually understand things like risk and that the price you pay for something matters and have them run by money. It's this new crowd that wasn't around in 99, 2000, that wasn't around in 08, 09. It's these people coming at the market with their stimulus checks that have all this, you know, free cash flow in the interim. And it's a dangerous thing. I mean, I'm bothered by the fact that, you know, you kind of scroll through these Tesla crowd, these Tesla bulls, and it's not professional investors. There are two or three kind of shills or professionals that, 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 that make a public social media case for Tesla, but it's people that put Tesla in their biographies. So these are not people working as analysts on the buy side. These are not portfolio managers. These are not professional investors. And then when they talk about how to go and trading information about how to find the lowest margin rate and on top of your concentrated Tesla position, we're now going to layer on and buy as many leap calls as we can and maximize the leverage in the account and then maximize leverage on top of leverage. You know, it becomes a Viacom, but it, it becomes Viacom to the retail investor. And when it goes sideways, reg T and margin calls are going to be a thing again. And 
you know, these people that have made a lot of money are just going to give it back. And when you try to reason with them, and when I've tried to reason with people individually, I've got a young analyst that works with me and, you know, he's in his mid twenties and he's got a peer group of friends who would otherwise listen to this guy. He's a very, very young, but smart, good investor. He's brilliant. And he tries to reason with his friends and they want nothing to do with the advice. So you really can't help these people. And it's going to take you know, a lot of people losing a lot of money. And, and that, that, that bothers me to no end. I mean, you know, you know, we'll benefit from the dislocation when the price of some of this stuff blows up. Believe me, I benefited materially when Microsoft declined by two thirds and I was able to buy it for such a giveaway price. Some of that will happen, but you know, I'm not, and, and they'll say, well, Chris has a short position. Again, my short position is tiny and I almost wish I hadn't put it on. I think it would almost make my case more legitimate if I didn't have a little short. You know, at some level, it's this again benevolence. Being Chris, it wouldn't matter. Trust, trust, trust me, it wouldn't yeah, matter. Even if you didn't have a short position, just people would assume you did. Guy. So, <laughs> too much about that. Yeah. But you know, it, it is. It, 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 it. I mean, it brings up a wider debate. Um, just kind of getting off Tesla in particular for a moment, and and just talking about value investing because for for the first time, I think we've seen um, recently uh, uh, that maybe the pendulum. Is starting to reach its farthest extremes in the in the growth versus value arc, you know. And it, and I charted for a piece I wrote this last weekend. I charted the Russell value versus the Russell growth ETF, just the ratio between the two. And, and it's it's truly extraordinary. I mean, it's it's a remarkable chart just to see how far uh, growth has gone. It, it it leaves 2000 looking like an insignificant blip on that chart. But there do seem to be signs that. That, that there's a swing back towards value. Are you seeing that? And if so, you know, what does that mean for you as a value investor? Well, it, you, know, you had a bifurcation in the market, you know, given the degree to which post-2009, passive flows and growth attracted more and more and more money. I, I won't say that the bifurcation was as great as it was at the end of 99, early 2000. I mean, then, you know, your S&P traded at a low 30s multiple to stated earnings, 40 times estimated. Um, the NASDAQ traded at 240 times. But under the surface, you know, if you were a small cap value manager in 97, 98, 99, you had negative flows. You'd show up at the office every day and you'd love what you owned. It was getting cheaper and cheaper. And your investors, your clients, redeemed from you and wanted their money back because they needed to chase tech. And that went on to the point where you had very real businesses, a lot of which were smaller and mid-cap. You'd put them in that value bucket. And I hate the terms value and growth because, you know, to me, yeah. you know, growth is just one part of the valuation equation. And it's a very important part. But you know, you had a lot of great businesses trading for single digit multiples to earnings then. And, you know, here we are of, you know, you had 12 years of the S&P averaging 15% a year, very extreme valuations in a lot of corners. You know, anything that's growth related, particularly in a world of zero interest rates, I think the growth factor, you know, becomes important. And, so, you know, you, you, you've had a very similar bifurcation, but there are places, and some of the overlay here would be ESG, but the oil patch, for example, got really, really cheap. Obviously, you had, you know, three years of trade war, you had the pandemic, you had oil traded in negative 
point on on the the near term futures, which was technically an aberration. But you know, the oil patch just got crushed. Well, you had a lot of capital of excess in 2012, 13, 14, leading up to 15. The oil price was 100. Exxon was spending 40 billion dollars. You know, the oil patch went nuts, and you've had a downturn, which was really exacerbated by the COVID, by the pandemic. And at a point in the fall, you know, oil as a component of the S&P 500 was less than 2%. Well, oil has a much more material impact on our economy and will for a much longer period of time. It doesn't mean we're going to spend a lot of money. I'm not sure there are going to be a lot of refineries built in North America or Europe. But the valuations, I was buying things in the fall, refineries in the fall that were trading at two, three, four times what I'd call mid-cycle earnings. And so there, are, there were a lot, of, a lot of places that would get thrown into this value bucket. You know, some guys call them shitcos, whatever. But there are good businesses there that were being given away. And some of that bifurcation has gone away. We're way up this year. I mean, um, we've made a lot of money. Um, overall, the portfolio's got pockets. Half the, half the names are still really cheap. And so, you know, fixing that bifurcation in 2000, took that first two years of the three years really of 2002, the S&P was down 50%. Yeah. A lot of good value managers made money. We were up something like 35% for those three years. Um, and you're seeing some of that. And I think it's probably the early, early innings because there are still pockets of value. And, and you started to get some of this tech stuff that rolled over. You know, a lot of those names are down for the year. The SPAC bubble seems to be, you know, finally mm-hmm. fixing itself. That was just an absurdity. Um, the economics can't work for the shareholder in those cases. And there are 400 plus, you know, blank check companies that are looking for acquisition targets. You know, the math there doesn't work. They're completely against uh, looking out for the shareholder. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think we're underway. The, the struggle I get is, you know, we've put on so much debt in our system. Total credit market debt is now 400% of GDP. That, you know, if you look at the last 20 years, nominal GDP has grown by 3%. Revenues at the S&P 500 have grown at 3%. It's really hard to presume that going forward, given the now increased levels of debt that we had to take on during the pandemic, that we're going to grow real GDP per capita at much more than the 1% rate at which it's grown for the last 20 years. We have a debt problem, and that and that's not a great thing. And so, you know, I'm really hard to make the case that that there are a lot of legs to the valuation metric. I mean, because the value has fixed itself, you talk about the Russell and the S&P 600 small cap, and I don't think about indices, but the valuation extremes aren't near as great as they were six months ago. And value mm-hmm. has won for the last six, six months, and a lot of that gap is closed. But at the top of the pyramid, the Teslas and a lot of these very high growthy names are really expensive and even very good businesses, wonderful growing businesses like an Estee Lauder, you know, a lot of the consumer goods companies trading at 40, 50, 60 times. I own Starbucks and have been trimming it, but good Lord, I mean, it's trading at 40 times. And uh, there are, there are a lot of places that, that I think have borrowed so much return from the future that you just can't get more, multiple expansion. There are places to get some, some uh, margin expansion, but they're, you know, it's, it's tougher to find margin expansion than multiple expansion. So there are more headwinds, I think, for the typical investor. But if you're going to be in this 
equity side, public equity side of the capital markets. Yeah, I'd sure think you'd want to be in the value camp and not on the come with some of these businesses like Tesla that are going to require Herculean impossibilities to grow into the valuation. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Whenever I talk to, I can always tell when I'm talking to someone who has a value bent because they talk about great businesses, not great stocks. You know, and that's it's such a telltale sign because these are great businesses. You know, it's not about the stock price; it's not about the stock. And now it has been only about the stock for many people, and that and that's again one of those pendulum marks that I feel I just get a sense that it's starting. To, to, to reach its farthest point because it, it does seem to be that the stock price, the argument about the stock price, it's kind of become a little bit passe now. And, and people, I think, are realizing there's just no point in getting into discussion with someone about a, a business when the only thing that matters is the stock price. And at that point, you just kind of sit back and say, well, okay, fine. Well, we, we know what we think of the business. We don't want to own it. Um, we'll see what happens to stock price. But, it, but as, you, as you look at the kind of shifting landscape, even if it's only shifting imperceptibly, what what do you how do you try and communicate this to people who who don't have that experience, who haven't seen the cycle, who haven't seen what happens when when growth does kind of topple under its own weight? How, how do you caution people about how to think about this and, and try and get a message across them that will make them at least reassess what they own and why they own it? You know, I would say my caution to the non-professional investor would be the affirmation of the stock price can't be how you go about investing. The fact that a stock has done, the stock, not a business, the fact that a stock has done really well cannot be your justification for this being a great business. And so... Valuation is one thing, and I think it's really hard for people to do valuation. But, you know, I would go back and, and say, I've talked at length about Costco. I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago with Patrick O'Shaughnessy on, on, you know, Costco is a great business. And we suspended the discussion of valuation. But Costco, which we own, and I've trimmed a lot, is a really good company. And I would say this. I, I would I take any company that I, I, I analyze and that I own or that, you know, we'd look at for inclusion in the portfolio. And from, from an intangible standpoint, I put the way Costco treats its constituents against any business under analysis. And so Costco, Costco's model is we're going to take care of our customers fiercely and we're going to take care of our employees. And if we do those two things, we can then take care of our shareholders. And I would take a company like Tesla and how they treat the customers, the employees, the shareholders, even the regulators. It's a completely different animal. And you can look to social media and, you know, some of the observations people have made. But as a professional investor, you know, you go back and look at the Solar City bailout. Well, how were the Tesla shareholders treated in that case? When you look at the board of directors' decision to give Elon more than 20% of the company in a series of two enormous stock option grants, 125 million shares in the 2012 version, 100 million shares in the 2018 iteration. You gave away more than 20% of the company. I mean, that's an extraordinary number. Abusive, I think, to the shareholder. 
um, the at the market sales. Who does that benefit? You know, think about this, and it goes back to the ARC model, but Tesla needs capital. They're selling these $5 billion chunks of stock. Well, if that implies that the stock is expensive, what does that say about the ARC case? If the stock is cheap, then what are the hell are you doing selling the stock for? Why aren't you raising debt capital? Or why aren't you, you know, living on the free cash that theoretically exists? You think about how they treat their customers. Good Lord. I mean, you know, for, for fun, and we could even do this here online. Go to the website, the Tesla website, and build a car. You know, I did it this morning for fun. It takes about 15 seconds to do. Up pops, depending on the model, $4,300 in gas savings, right? And you build your car, you put in your paint color, you put in your interiors, you pick whether you're going to do $10,000 for FSD, which is an entire another story. And you get to the pay for the car. And your MSRP was, was $32,000, whatever. And it said you've got $4,300 in gas savings. When you get to the end, they charge you for the $4,300 in gas savings. It's the most extraordinary thing. They're saying you're going to save this money, but we're going to charge you for it. That's insanity. So then you go to the go to pay. And we've all read that you can pay in Bitcoin, right? When you click on the pay in Bitcoin, and here's the, the, the three-paragraph disclosure, I mean, they, they tell you because they have to tell you, well, if you're going to need to get a refund, or you're going to have to be, have a buyback, then it's a heads we win, heads I win, tails you lose. We have at our prerogative paying you back in Bitcoin or in dollars. So just that's abusive to people. I mean, why would you even entertain for novelty's sake paying in Bitcoin if it's just a lose to the customer? When you take a, whatever you buy at Costco back for a you know, return, they don't quibble with you. They're trying to make the experience such that you win. And, you know, everything they do, the, the solar business, you know, they had to have their, their, their solar gigafactory in New York State. And they're required to spend something like $2 billion a year. So you're reading here in the last couple of weeks about these poor people who have been waiting for a year to get their new solar roof. And all of a sudden, now they're into the queue where they're going to get the roof. And whoa, lo and behold, we have a 2x increase in the price. How do you do that? And you think about how they treat their employees. And I've read you know, plenty and talk to plenty of people that have said, you know, just at the point where somebody's been at the company long enough that their small option grant or their small RSU grant was going to vest, they get fired right in advance of that. They had the S and the X line. They dismissed those people at year end and said, we're going to put you on leave, go home. We're not going to be producing S and Xs. We don't need you. We'd love you to come work on another line at your expense to get us through year end, but we're not going to do the S and the X. And then in the press release, fourth, fourth quarter press release, Elon announced that the S and X was actually under production. When you look at the numbers as this came out in the last quarter, they had no production of the S and the X. A lot of incongruity, but, and then, you know, don't even go down the path of how, how they treat the regulators, be that the, the NHSTA or, you know, the comments about the SEC and what that acronym is. I mean, you can't, you can't go out of your way to treat everybody more badly than they do. And that ought to be the barometer for whether you're in bed with a good company or not. And find those businesses, if you're an amateur or retail investor, of places where they treat everybody well. Not everybody does. You know, the capital markets are brittle. You know, these CEOs and CFOs are running companies to try to get rich personally. So there's a lot of abuse that's not easy for the lay investor to figure out. But, you know, at minimum, do some digging and some understanding about it. Is this place really, really being run for the benefit of the common shareholder and 
not the management? And how do we treat people like customers? And I think anybody can get their mind around some of those metrics. It's interesting. Um, my, my, my dear friend, Tony Deaton, told me a story a, a while ago about a guy, a friend of his who, you know, was, was always talking about this stock tip and that stock tip. And, you know, he put some money into this and some money into that. And it, it had just been a tip that someone had given him and he's just thrown some money at it. And then at some point he was asked to, um, if he would invest in a, a local dry cleaner. You know, he knew the guy and the guy was looking for some additional capital. And because it wasn't a listed share and it wasn't a stock tip, it, he was asked, being asked to invest in a business. This guy suddenly knew everything there was to know about dry cleaners. He went out and he, he researched the local market and he found out where the nearest competition was and kind of profit margins of dry cleaners and all this sort of stuff. And, and there was something about investing in a business that made him want to understand the business better, whereas investing in a stock, it was just a number, and he would happily throw 10 grand at this and 10 grand at that in the hope that he you know, went to 12 or 15 grand. But putting that same 10 grand into a business was a wholly different exercise. And you know, for me, when I look at what's going on now, you know, this, this attention span problem that, that the world seems to be having, not, not just investing, but in general, you know, the, people's attention spans are, are so short now that if something doesn't work immediately, you know, the what have you done for me lately with, with stock prices seems to now be down to the day or the hour rather than the month or the quarter. So for, for trying to, as you say, do some digging about a company and understand its business, understand how they treat the, the, the shareholders and the customers, it's just, it's just too hard, Chris, frankly, for most people. They just don't want to have to do all that work. They'd rather throw money at something that keeps going up. It's what we're seeing with some of these cryptocurrencies. You know, they're, they're going up and they're attracting a lot of lazy capital because it seems to be a, a one-way ticket to, to profits. Yeah, the, the, absolutely. There, there are times, and they tend to occur at secular peaks, but that the market has become a casino and has nothing to do with the analysis of businesses for the sake of business ownership, but it's numbers on a screen or on a piece of paper, late 1920s into the 1929 peak, the rise in margin debt. You had 10 yeah. years of straight up bull market and it was a casino at the end. Uh, late 1960s, the go-go 60s and the conglomerates and what have you, it was a casino. 1998, 99, 2000, casino. We're back to margin debt growing at, at historic rates of year-over-year -year growth that, that parallel those prior peaks. And you're back to where stocks are, are numbers on a piece of paper and you know too many people are not taking the time to look through to the business itself. And that's really the only way investing ought to work. And that's, that's where value investing loses at those times when the flows go against them. And they wind up winning when the casino closes and, you know, the retail people caught up in the mania are sent home. And that leaves those that not only understand how to identify businesses that are well run for the benefit of the shareholder, and the customer and the employees, but that are also trading at prices that make sense. And so you've got to have the business quality and the price. And we've yeah. suspended both yardsticks today by these people that are, that are at the roulette wheel or, at the blackjack table, because that, that's what we have. And even the family offices that blow up on, on you know, the Viacoms and the discoveries. I mean, you don't even own the underlying shares. So it's being done 
by not only the retail investor, but at the higher, most upper echelons of finance. And the leverage underneath all of this is insane. The fact that that you'd have any vehicle allowed to exist that looked anything like long-term capital management is a mystery to me. So where are the regulators and all this? I don't know, but you know, it tends to win for the value crowd when this kind of stuff blows up. And you know, it's been blowing up and topping, and I think you've got some rational return to value again, and maybe it continues, maybe it doesn't. But um, I think, unfortunately, those that are in the casino don't want to take advice. And are just going to have to lose a lot well, of money. Yeah, yeah. That 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 to me is is the thing that causes me the most sadness. I have to say, you know, you, you and I will be put down by many as a couple of well, they'll probably label us boomers, even though we're both Gen Xers. They'll but they'll probably think that we're just you know crusty old boomers who are upset about this and that. And the simple truth is, you know, nothing would please me more than to see all these people cash in and walk away with this money they've made because I don't think most people have any idea how fortunate they are to have made this money. Um, and to be able to cash out and walk away before the casino closes would be fantastic. But it's, you know, you, you, you talk about these things and share experiences you've had in the past as you've been so gracious to do today in the hope that people listen to it, understand these things do happen, and, and maybe do some research about the late 90s and try and understand that period of time better. Um, but unfortunately, as you said, people in the casino, they don't, they don't want to be told. Well, it's funny. I, uh, you know, I'm 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 detached enough from kind of the day-to-day social media pop culture that for quite a while, when I was getting the the, the feedback of OK Boomer, I thought I was a term of affection in my in my football days. You know, I've, I've had several <laughs> nicknames from Bloomy to Bloomer to Boomer. I mean, I've I've been Boomer with a lot of my coaches and teams. Uh, how the hell are they so familiar with? How would you know my nickname from way back when? But there's that, and obviously, and, and I'm not even a boomer. I mean, I, I don't know where you are in terms of the year of birth. I think you and I are about a year apart. I think we're both Gen X's, I mean, the, we're forgotten, not even the forgotten generation. Thing, not even a baby boomer. I'm, I'm in the generation after the boomers. My mother's a boomer. Good Lord. Right. Well, you, you and I, the, the, the gray hair doesn't help either of us, unfortunately. I think, that, I think gray hair, you're a de facto boomer, whether you like it or not. That's just how it works. Well, then, for that, I've been a boomer since I was 23 years old. <laughs> I've got a little bit on you there. Well, listen, Chris, this has been absolutely fascinating. I, I've I've enjoyed every second of it as I knew I would. And um, you, I've just realized how long we've run it. It's, time has just flashed by for me. You've been really gracious with your time. Um, hopefully we can do this again because I, I, I'd love to spend some separate time with you talking about Buffett and Graham and and, and that kind of side of your, of your background and, and the kind of the work you've done on them. Because again, it's another fascinating topic. But I think we've um, we've given people enough to think about for for one session. So look, before we go, if you could, just um, just let people find out how they can follow your occasional Twitter posts and find out more about Semper Augustus. Well, Grant, thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure to be with you and have enjoyed our past conversations prior to recording today. Yeah, yeah, probably the best place is our website. I've got a collection of you know most of our old client letters, which tend to you know be on the long side longer here in the last five or six years, but they're all there. Um, I'm on Twitter and I don't recommend finding me on Twitter. Um, so yeah, I'd go to semperaugustus.com. It's probably, I would say the best venue to, you know, if you want to dig into kind of how we look at the world and valuation stocks, Berkshire, what have you, um, a little more, um, grounded thought than some of the, you know, 30 minute, you know, 
10 minutes to write the piece and 20 minutes to right. fit it into 200, 288 character piece threads on Twitter and, 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 and without the blowback. Yeah, there you go. Well, I, I was gonna, I was gonna throw you under the bus and give away your Twitter handle, but you're right. I won't, I won't do that. The people that want to find you will want to find you, hopefully, and and we'll we'll try and keep as many of the flying monkeys off your back as possible. Chris, thank you so much. Um, hopefully, you and I can sit and have a, a nice quiet meal and share a bottle of wine at some point in in person in the future. Well, hopefully sooner rather than later. Thanks, Grant. Amen. Talk to you soon. Thanks again. Man, I could have spent several more hours talking to Chris and hopefully he and I can uh, continue that conversation another day. There's plenty, plenty more to dig into. Like Chris's experience in the dot-com bubble, I just have this feeling that today's hubris and extreme speculation will at some point end in another catastrophe for the, for the unprepared investor. Hopefully, today's conversation will have at least helped some at the casino tables think about questioning the world around them and for those of you gnashing your teeth at the insanity around you, maybe it's provided a little comfort that you're not alone. Please do take a look at Chris's website, semperaugustus.com, and do read his client letters. You'll find them on there. It's an extraordinary body of work. That's all from me for now. Uh, I'll be back again with another conversation soon. But in the meantime, please visit grant-williams.com to read my most recent Things That Make Go Hum called Amen Corner, which was published last Sunday. And if you don't follow me on Twitter, that can be very easily rectified by tapping at TTMYGH into the Twitter search bar. That's it from me. I will see you all again soon. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.